All right, so we've been working our way through this book of Matthew, kind of a paragraph at a time, because we believe it's God's Word, it's inspired, and God speaks to us through His Word. And uh, the big idea we're looking at today is that every believer is valuable to God, and uh, every believer is worthy of respect. So we picked the story up in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Remember last week, the disciples have just failed in their test of faith to help and to heal a dad and his son. But they move on from that failure to get into an argument about which of them is the most important, which of them is the greatest. And they even took it to Jesus, dressed it up a little bit, and they said, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Remember, Jesus brought a child into the circle, put him in the place of honor and said, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Well, here's your model, this child. Child that's humble and open and questioning and respectful and willing to follow and not conniving. And we aren't told the disciples' reactions or thoughts to this new idea. We could probably guess. But here's what Jesus said next See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, Don't despise the little ones. Is he talking about the children? I think so. I mean, you know, basically kids are supposed to be seen and not heard. Yeah, you've heard that before. Or is he talking to Peter, James, and John, kind of over the heads of the, the other disciples or the little people that he's just been healing? I don't know if it really matters. Probably not. Jesus is saying every believer is worthy of respect. Every Christian matters. And we need to take each into one account, into account that, because God does. That he actually says there's angels that watch over these children that are in the presence of God that could tell on you, is really what he's saying if you treat them with a disrespect. In fact, this idea of a guardian angel is sprinkled throughout the, the, the Bible. In Psalm 34, verse 4, it says, I sought the Lord and he answered me, delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I know my mom thought I had a guardian angel, and you know, angels, this is telling us, are involved in the affairs of this world, that they have immediate access to God. And God is aware, he stays aware while he's in heaven with the help of the angels, but he would be able to by himself, of course, but he stays aware of the situations here on earth and what's happening with his people. Even the little people, even the lowliest of the people, the little ones matter to God. Well, here at our church, of course, we have kids zero to years old to 100 years old. And uh, when you look at us as a church, we're not re nearly as racially diverse as heaven is going to be. And, uh, you know, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in his sight. And uh, for us to be open and inviting people, regardless of their background, who would, we would consider people that, like the children were to the disciples, they just kind of looked over their heads. They just kind of didn't see them. God is suggesting that we see them. And we're not a church that's stacked with lots of famous people or people that uh, are in the news. We're really kind of the little ones of God's kingdom. But God has gifted us, and he, he, he wants us doing everything we can for his glory. And when we stand before him in heaven someday, we want to hear him say, South Shores Church 2019, stand up. Well done. You did everything that I wanted you to do. Uh, you, you know, and so we're going to continue. We declare God's word and we serve in the name of Jesus and we give generously and we pray fervently and we go in the name of Jesus and we support one another in love and we respect each other. I mean, every believer is worthy of respect. 
The second thing we see in this passage is every stray believer is worthy of rescue. Verse 11, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And when or if he finds it, truly I say to you, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is giving us a picture of God. That God is the one who, with 99 in the fold and recognizing one is missing, this picture of a shepherd that has about 100 sheep, and as he's counting them as they're coming in, often they would stay in a cave on the hill, and he would get them all inside, then he would sleep across the door himself so the sheep couldn't get out, the wolves couldn't get in. <coughs> and and uh, as he counted them one night, well, one is missing. So he gets them all in and gets them as safe as he can, and he goes out looking and looking and looking. It's in present tense. He keeps searching. He's taking a risk, leaving all of those 99 sheep far from, far from shelter, far from home, to go look for the one that is lost. Because God loves that much. He cares that much. He watches over his own, and when they wander away, he takes the initiative, just like the shepherd did, to go look for the one that's lost. This story is repeated in Luke chapter 15, but there's three stories back to back to back in case you didn't get it. There's the lost sheep, then there's the lost coin that a woman lost and she finally found in her house, searching the place top to bottom, and then there's the lost son or lost sons. It's really a story we call the prodigal story of the prodigal son, which is <clears throat> two sons, one that got lost in a far country, one that got lost staying right there in the house. Neither one really fully understood their father and the father is working to draw them to himself. God's will, God's desire is not even the little ones should perish or be forgotten or trampled or discounted or ignored. <clears throat> That's a tall order, and we take it seriously. That's why here at church we have four staff that are dedicated to working with children's ministry. We have one of our deacons that's dedicated to tracking what's happening in children's ministry. There's about 25 volunteers this morning that are working with children and their families right here at church. That's why we put 200 volunteers on the Easter fair day, the Saturday before Easter. You'll probably hear about it and be invited to come help. We're throw a party for thousands of people from our community, most of them under four feet tall. That's why we go to all the effort to have vacation Bible school for about 250 kids each year. We love the little ones. They are VIPs with us. They matter that much to God. So Jesus lifted up their value to God. He says when they go astray, God starts a search and rescue until they're found. And then there's great rejoicing. God desires stray believers to be rescued. So in verse 14, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see, sin breaks the relationship with God. And if you persist in sin, you'll perish. And God is doing his part. Short of forcing your hand, he does everything he can to rescue stray believers. He loves you that much. The third thing we see here is every sinning believer is worthy of restoration. How should believers treat each other when they get into sin. You know, we get as many people together as we have right here in the room, and most of us have been converted to Jesus Christ and are fully devoted followers of His. We are diverted from a life of sin. Either great sin or little sin, it doesn't matter. We were all on the track of sin. And so we have in the room here, besides the fully converted and devoted followers of Christ, we have experts in sin. People understand it. 
People who know the shorthand and, 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 and how, to, how to deal and how to fool and, uh, and, and, and uh, how to make it happen. And sooner or later, we have to have a plan of how to deal with sin in the life of a believer. And Jesus is spelling that out right here. So I think step zero that Jesus didn't talk about is spending time daily with God in his word and in his presence. Giving God a, a time as you read scripture and you spend time in prayer yourself for God to whisper in your ear, hey, you didn't handle that situation very well. Maybe you need to go back and apologize to that person. Or Psst, you kind of clonked your friend there that other day. Did, did you really mean to say those harsh words? Because you built a wall where there could have been a bridge. Or God said, hey, you know, you're trying to cheat and cut corners. Beware. But that's not the part we're really talking about today. Jesus put forward something of when you get sideways with a Christian brother or sister. Here's what he said, verse 15. If your brother, another believer, sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, this verse sometimes is also translated with two words missing because, you know, they had copies, they, they had scripture copied by hand, and then copies were made, copies were made, and we've collected a bunch of those old ones, and some of them, the, this verse actually reads like this. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. The most authoritative ones say, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. In other words, you don't need to be picking at somebody else, so, hey, you didn't do that right, you didn't do that. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about you've been offended because of something that happened between you that clearly the other person was in the wrong. We don't usually deal with this very well. We usually don't go to the right people to talk about it. We go talk to other people, which is wrong. It just gets the wrong thing, kinds of things started. And so he's putting out here guidance for us that's easy to understand. It's harder to do. And step one is to get to the offender and talk to him about the, the infraction and talk about his sin and do the confrontation in private with an attitude, with a hope to restore the relationship. The brother relationship between two Christian brothers was interrupted because of sin. So you initiate between the two of you work to get it restored. See, your brother is another believer. It's not somebody from this world. Now, I know we live in a country that is fast losing its Christian values that it's had, but we've always kind of been a little fooled on this, like everybody should think like a Christian even if they're not and should respond like a Christian even if they're not. The Bible says if you're not in Christ, spiritually, you're dead. Now, dead people are fixed up to look like they're alive, but if you get close to enough and touch them, you realize they're dead. They're cold. So dead people don't think like live people. They don't respond like live people. They don't talk like live people. They're not alive. They're dead. So if you are talking to somebody who's spiritually dead, it's, it's, it's really it's not right to be treating them and expecting they're going to be living by the values of Christ when they're not in Christ. But here he's talking about between two believers, and there's a conflict. And it's not just something trivial like he wants to paint the room green and I know the bright color is blue. Um, it, it's something where there was a fault, and it says go tell him his fault or show him his fault or reprove him or have it out with him. It's translated a few different ways there, but get the person to see his fault for what it really is. James says it this way, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Loving restoration, that's the goal. And if he listens, you've restored a believer. 
If not, go to step two, which is loving confrontation with witnesses. Well, you're still trying to restore the person. Verse 16 says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Well, Deuteronomy 19 started this, where Moses wrote the law, and he says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Well, in Deuteronomy, of course, Moses is establishing the law. And it's actually used uh, you know, as a precedent for how law is, evidence is presented in court. But we're not on trial here at church. We are um, primarily a family. But he's saying issues still need to be addressed in an orderly and in a fair manner. So remember, the relationship between believers has been broken because of sin. The goal is to restore them in relationship. And the offender has heard the concern from his Christian brother, but he said, no, I'm not going to budge. I'm not going to change. And so the Christian, offended Christian brother comes back with two or three witnesses. Probably won't change their mind the second time around either. It gets harder to do as you get into more and more public arena. But at least there will be witnesses in the church to vouch for what was said. So if he listens, it says, which means if he responds appropriately, if he changes his behavior, if he apologizes, if he gets back on the right track, then you have won a Christian brother. If not, you go to step number three, loving confrontation with the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, this is the second time in the book of Matthew that the word church is mentioned. The first is in Matthew 16, where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, God revealed that to you. And on this rock, I will build my church. The rock is not Peter. The rock is that foundation stone that Jesus Christ is God come into this world in human flesh, that he's God's son, that he's the hope for the world. And so that's the first time where he said, I will build my church. He's building on that foundation of Christ. Then right here, he, he uses the word the church. And the church, the concept of church hasn't really flowered yet. It's more developed after the life and death and resurrection and, and departure from this world of Jesus. So after all those things happened, then <clears throat> you had the day of Pentecost where Peter preaches the Spirit of the Holy Spirit of God is poured out. 3,000 people become believers and they start to gather in groups and to worship and to praise God and the churches are born and it grows and it spreads in, in each local community. And at some point after that, Matthew writes his book and he's telling the story of Jesus and his disciples because he doesn't want the story lost and he uses the word church which by the time everybody in the church is reading this, they know what he's talking about. But Jesus, you see, didn't fully outline it. He, he doesn't ever mention the, a pastor or a church board to help in conflict resolution process. So it's rare, I think, to have believers actually follow what he's saying here. If, if there's an issue, go talk directly to the person. It's kind of scary. And to do it in private and to do it in love and to do it with a, a view, how do we rest, restore this person? And it's, by the time it gets to the level we're talking here, usually something serious like this would involve one of our pastors or one of the deacons in the process. I mean, Jesus, like I say, didn't talk about church leadership. Paul does 
in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, he's writing to one of the churches. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So by the time Paul was establishing churches and visiting them and writing them letters, um, some had already gotten sideways and into trouble. And the church in Corinth was a a contentious church that you wonder, was the church impacting the culture or was the culture influencing the church? And in 1 Corinthians 5, you have a, a terrible situation where somebody is living in a sinful relationship openly in the church and everybody in the church is just either turning a blind eye or saying, well, that's okay with me, or I'm not going to confront it. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in your church, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present and with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He is saying he has not responded to God's word. You as a church cannot condone this. This is being lived in front of all of you. He needs to be removed from positions of leadership and your church membership in an extreme measure to bring repentance and life change. He would still be welcome to attend so he hears God's word. But when he gets to this point, if he doesn't turn, treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, those are people who are outsiders. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're an outsider, and you don't fit in. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. We all like to be liked. We like to fit in. We like to be included. And we don't like to do this uh, confrontation that it's talking about here. But it's the loving thing to do. And often we don't want to follow the guidance of Christ because it's hard. And we hope the problem just goes away. It doesn't. So we often take the wrong course of action. We often talk behind their back or we talk to the wrong people. We need to be courageous and follow Christ even when it's challenging. So when Paul wrote this to the early church and Christ said this to the, uh, to the believers, you had one group, you had one church, and you were either in the church or in the world. Now we live in a time where it's fractured. The church is more like a dysfunctional family because there's multiple churches, multiple denominations. And it's like when mom and dad have split and and the kid can play one parent against the other and, and, and it doesn't work very well to try to maintain some disciplines. You get confronted like this in one church and if you don't choose to repent, well, you could just go to a different church. And when asked why you change churches, you don't have to say, well, I was chosen to live in sin. And... I want to keep living in sin, and when they confronted me, I didn't like it. So they removed me from my position of leadership, so now I'm coming to your church. I've never had anybody say anything like that to me. Instead, what people say is, well, I wasn't being fed, or, well, they weren't very friendly over there. So the church is fractured. It's broken, and we don't really have as much distinction as we need to, and 
if you lived in a place where it was a crime to love Jesus and to follow him, and there's only one church, and you had chose to live in sin, and they confronted you, you'd have to choose, am I going to stay part of this fellowship, which is precious and dear to me, or am I going to go live in the world, which you know leads to destruction and to hell? And you'd be without any Christian fellowship or support, and you would count the cost differently, wouldn't you? And you would humble yourself sooner and repent and turn back from sin. Nonetheless, we need to follow Christ. And the goal of the confrontation is restoration. So look what Jesus says. He gives his divine authority to the church for restoration and for giving authority to remove people. Look at verse 18. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on heaven will be on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is empowering all the disciples. This is the same thing he said to Peter when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, then they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What's the principle and how do we apply it? It's this, sin breaks relationships. It breaks them with God it breaks, them with, it breaks it with other believers. And the goal is to be in right relationship with God and with other believers. And the problem is complicated when a person living in sin and confronted choose to, chooses to continue living in sin or denies it or hides it or refuses to deal with it even when confronted by a friend or by several people or by the whole church. So the next level then is to remove them from a position of leadership and from membership and still encourage them to attend because the goal is restoration of relationship. There's a pastor named Bob Thune. He's at a church in Omaha, Nebraska, and he wrote about this topic in the Gospel Coalition. So you could Google it if you want, but let me read some of an expert. He said, Jack was living in deception, and that put him under discipline at our church. On the surface, Jack was a sharp, committed church member, a medical student helping to lead and oversee a small group. But under the surface, he was hiding a serious problem with lust and alcohol. It came to light that he was sleeping around. He had just been involved in the last year with six different women, including one who was in his small group and wasn't a Christian. And instead of sharing the gospel, he had shared her bed. And instead of inviting her to Christ, he had invited her to sin. And all of this came to light not because he came forward in repentance, but because she did. So our elders asked Jack to write a letter to the other covenant members of our church, bringing into the light what he had been keeping in the dark. We shared his letter privately, not publicly, inviting his fellow members to surround him in prayer and accountability. And we laid out for him a redemptive plan with specific boundaries and expectations to help kill his sin. Bringing deception into the light was humbling, even humiliating for Jack. He had to tell the truth about who he really was. He had to face the disconnect between reality and pretense. But this is the toothy side of church membership. Jack had represented himself as a spiritual leader. He had covenanted with other members to live a life of fellowship with God marked by repentance and faith. 1 John 1, 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and you walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Colossians 3, 9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practice. 
Jack had lied persistently and willfully, and repentance for lying requires telling the truth to the people you've deceived. Well, about a year later, Jack's job moved him to another city, and he got involved with another local church there. But in a strong demonstration of integrity, Jack told his new pastor that he was under discipline at his previous church and that he needed ongoing accountability. The pastor called me and I sent along, with Jack's permission, the letter Jack had written to the members and the redemptive plan our elders had crafted. The pastor continued the journey of discipleship with Jack, mentoring him in the gospel and helping him form new habits and new disciplines. Well, then Pastor Bob Thune says, I skipped a bunch, but he said, on a recent Sunday, I saw Jack again back in our church for the first time in years with his wife and his children. And after the worship service, he purposely sought me out and looked me directly in the eye, and he said, thank you for, well, for all of that six years ago. If I'm honest, there were moments when I hated you, but I'm so thankful now, really, Thank you. Now, these aren't the stories that get told, but they're real. Real people who helped and loved and strengthened when the church had the courage to obey the Scriptures. So he concludes, biblical discipline isn't punitive. It's beautifully redemptive, but it takes some time to see the fruit. So the big idea that we're looking at here today is that every believer is valuable to God, that every believer is valuable of respect even the little people. Let's not overlook anybody. And every stray believer is worthy of rescue. That when you see somebody getting sideways, confront them in love and in private with humility and gentleness and a desire to have them come back and walk with Christ. And that every sinning believer is worthy of restoration. So it pleases God when we put our efforts into respect and rescue and restoration. It's hard work but it produces the fruit of Christ. Shall we pray? Dear God, thank you for putting this in your word to give us guidance where we need it. This isn't one of the flashy passages and it's not one that we read every day and it's probably not anybody's favorite, but it's so important. So I pray that you will give us courage even right now as we, as we think about people perhaps that we have offended, that we need to go and apologize and get right with them and with you. Maybe there's people who have offended us and we need to have the courage to go speak to them humbly and privately with a view of how do we bring restoration in the relationship. Give us courage as your people to think your thoughts and listen to your voice and to respond quickly with obedience to the work that you want to do in us. God, we don't want just new facilities. We want a new heart. And you keep growing that heart in us. And we, we need to be your people, even in the spots that are tough. So right now, I pray that you will give us your wisdom and your insight and your courage and your grace and your strength to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Amen.